0: Great to see all of you. We're glad to have you today. I don't know if you've noticed we have, if you don't see one in your chair, we have them for you up at the guest services. We have our new devotional to take you through the next three months. We're kind of doing this devotional together, because a lot of us have a hard time reading the Bible. I get it. I have a hard time staying on track with what I, my devotion plan is. And, and it's a real simple, easy thing. Uh, so much so that the devotional has an accompaniment uh, applic- app that you can download that will actually, if you're a dude like me who's ADD, you want it read to you. You know, so we have an audio version of it so we can read it to you. So we've, we're trying to make it as easy as possible for you to have those moments with God where you can, you know, just hear him speak into your life. Um, we're beginning Advent and if you don't come from a traditional church background, Advent is that time, the four or five weeks leading up to the birth of Christ, where you, you just kind of slow down your life and you look with intentionality about what's taking place in the season. You don't let Amazon.com determine how your Christmas is going to be. And so it, it surrounds this idea of these four candles. And we have provided with you, if you don't have our app during today's sermon, you can go to the website, you can go to any of the app stores and download Crosstown, and it's a little app, and it will show you how to build your own Christmas wreath, Advent wreath, and we'll have devotions and little stories that will be pushed notice to you every single day so that you can read in between you and the Lord, you can have it time with your family for breakfast before you rush out the door. So we invite you to just kind of jump on board with, you know, just having some intentionality about, about discovering more than just presents during this Christmas season. So, you know, going into Advent, it, we're going to be looking at different elements of the Christmas story. And I know you probably think, well, this is, you know, as a pastor, you got to love Christmas and you got to love Easter. And to be the kind of guy that I am, the kind of communicator that I am, I dread Christmas. I, and And the reason why I dread it is it's I like being innovative. I like being creative. I like new twists and things like that. But the Christmas story has been told. I mean, there's movies about it. Disney's done it. Everybody's done Christmas. So uh, when the season comes around, there's been even years I'm like, let's just not talk about Christmas. Let's just kind of just keep going through something and, and let's just not do it because it, it's hard for me to create some new thing about it because it's something that is real old. But I, I, We'll get around to that later on, how God has really changed my perspective on what I call the dread of Christmas as a pastor, but to begin to discover something new about it. And so we're going to be taking a look over the next couple of weeks at the role of the, the prophets of Mary and Joseph. We're going to be looking at the shepherds or the angels. You know, I tried to insert some new characters like Transformers or, um, you know, Tony Stark from, you know, uh, Iron Man or something. I just can't throw new characters in this. I, I've got to work with what I've got. But we're going to find out pretty soon that the story has some really beautiful things that God wants us to discover about it, and also to discover about its familiarity. So as we talk about the prophets, when you look at the birth of Jesus, as you're going through Matthew or Luke or you're hearing the story told to you by the Grinch who stole Christmas or whatever source that you're hearing it from, you'll hear references to prophetic foretellings. You'll hear references about the birth of Christ referring to something that maybe a prophet said a long time ago before Christ was born. For instance, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. You've probably heard it stated before in Micah 5.2. It was foretold that, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be called the ruler in Israel. I mean, that was foretold centuries before Christ was born. Maybe you're familiar with the one where, about where or how the Messiah would be born. Out of Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, a prophetic foretelling of an event that was going to take place centuries later, or maybe about the Messiah coming out of Egypt, which is kind of an interesting one because I thought Israel and Egypt was kind of like a, a done deal that they came out of Egypt, but we were told prophetically by the prophet Hosea in 11:1, that he says that God says, I love my son and I will call my son out of Egypt. And all these things were like foretelling the birth of Christ and the prophets were declaring what God was going to do. And when I was younger, these prophecies served a really big value for me. And not for the same reason that you may think, but in my early Christian walk, they served as um, mathematical verifications of the truth of Christianity. I don't have a faith, and not everybody has the same kind of faith. We, we kind of have different, how we arrive at our faith is different. Some people arrive at their faith through maybe pain or through success. Some people will dig through archaeology to find out what their faith is about and substantiate it. For me, mathematical probability was a really important thing when I was starting this Christian journey. And so one of the things that was important to me was these prophecies. Because when added together, prophecies served as proofs of improbability or proof of the miraculous, if you look at it that way. That if you began to add these things up, it was like, okay, what are the odds of these things happen that have been told before? Because if I'm looking for a God, one of the integral components of that God would be that he's all-powerful and that he's over time. So in my early formation of my belief in the Christian faith, it was like, okay, i got to see some demonstration that this is not just a collection of some pretty cool old stories, that this isn't just kind of like, you know, a faith that you believe in and you kind of hope it's right, but that if God is over time, that there should be some mechanism, some way to observe, to verify his ability and his power over time mathematically. So the prophecies really served as that for me. And, And I remember one Sunday I was communicating that to you. It was about five years ago. And I was presenting the statistical probability of the prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled by one person in time. Well, like, what are the odds that this man, Jesus, would fulfill with what scholars believe are about, like, 60 prophecies? Well, if you even just took eight of them, you know, the numbers of probability began to shoot up, and they they were crazy numbers, numbers that we don't even use in public anymore. But, um, so I remember presenting that to, uh, to you guys, and, and I remember the odds of these prophecies being fulfilled were some crazy number like 1 in, uh, to 1 times 10 to the 17th power. Now, that, uh, that's a, like a crazy big number in science. But to visualize it, I remember on that Sunday that I, I told this older example that it is equivalent numerically that if you took a silver dollar, one of those old silver dollar coins, um, and you filled the whole state of Texas two feet deep with these old silver dollars and just covered the whole big giant state of Texas two feet deep. And then you took one of the coins and you etched in it a giant X. And then you took that one coin and you threw it out in the middle of Texas and got a big Texas-sized stick, and you, and you stirred Texas all up two feet deep, all these coins, and you mixed them up. Now, the probabilities of Jesus just fulfilling eight of the Old Testament prophecies is equivalent to you taking an individual, blindfolding them, walking them around the state of Texas, then walking away and leaving them blindfolded, and say, listen, the odds of Jesus being the Christ... And fulfilling just eight of the 60 prophecies is equivalent to you reaching down on one attempt and pulling out that coin with the X on it. Now that's a, that's a pretty impressive demonstration of, of improbability. That when all of a sudden improbability begins to exhaust its numbers, it begins to tempt us a little bit into the miraculous. And I think, I think reasonably so. I don't think it's an irrational leap to begin to, to uh, think in terms like this. But, you know, I was presenting that five years ago. And just before I presented it, just before the 9 service, I went back in my office and, and I remember sitting down and I was like, God, this is stupid. You know, I mean, it's kind of like I'm doing this coin thing. And this number thing. Nobody else cares about numbers. I'm the only guy that's got this kind of, you know, weird, weak little faith that needs the verification of science and things like that. And, and I, you know, I'm like, I, I'm just not going to do it. And I, I mean, I, I had determined I was not going to use the illustration. So I'm like, God, if you want me to use this illustration then you're just going to have to, like, give me a sign that you want me to do this. Well, this was where it got really weird. Because all of a sudden, there's a knock at my office door. My office was there. And I remember this gentleman came in, a a man that I had never met before, and I didn't even know his name. And he's standing at the door. And I said, yes, sir. And I said, yeah, you're about to baptize my son today. And I just wanted to come and tell you thank you. And I said, hey, that's, that's what we're about. And he said, no, I just kind of feel like I should give you a present. And so I said, you don't have to do that. He said, no. And he reaches in his back pocket and pulls out a 1930s silver dollar. And he hands it to me. Okay, not some new silver dollar. He didn't hear me do any preface, you know, like rehearse my sermon. We don't put the sermon on the internet before I do the sermon or anything like that. I'm sitting there, I'm like, and, and the guy hands it to me, I said, you're giving me a silver dollar. And he he's, he's, uh, was a humble man. He Yeah. No, let me get this straight. You're, you're giving me a silver dollar today. And it's the same picture of the picture of the same silver dollar model of the one that I've got up on the screen. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And he's like, man, I've got a lot out of that silver dollar. <laughs> and this, this guy's easy to please. But I was just, the probability of the prophetic thing and the probability of this happening to me were in my hand I held the improbable. And so... There are times in my life where I've experienced challenges where on my desk where that coin sits when, when the church floods, when I don't feel as good physically as I, I want to feel or I'm challenged about how I'm going to retire or concerned about the lives of other people and I begin to waver in my faith a little bit, I, I, I'm able to reach down onto my desk and pull up that coin and it serves as a physical reminder of an improbability. Uh, but the reality of God in my life. And that's what the prophecies are, is that when we see them, they're like these little coins, these, these stones that have been placed in history for us to pick up and say, yeah, that's... That's pretty improbable. If I'm, if I'm being a rationalist and I want to kind of justify what I want to believe in, I'm looking for who's giving me the highest probability, Occam's razor, if you're into philosophy and all that other stuff. I'm really looking for what, what is the most likely and reasonable discussion. And all of a sudden, the prophets begin to provide me with this information. See, prophecies are these foretellings, but they're more than foretellings. Prophecies prophecies are the assertions of divine will over the effects of time and over the effects of mankind, these these assertions into life. I don't know if you went shopping on Black Friday, but if you did and you were waiting for that 55-inch Samsung HD 4K TV to go on sale at Costco and you were standing in line, not that you would do this, but if you were waiting in line, you know how important it is that you got up early, had coffee, got the rest of the family going, you know, hypothetically, and that you were standing in line like a carnivore waiting for that TV to become available, acting like it was the only one that had ever been created, but at $295, it was the best that had ever been on sale. But you know, if you were standing in line like that, and all of a sudden somebody came up and just kind of nudged their way into line, you know, and they just kind of like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And you're there, I mean, you're at attention like a soldier and you made it very clear with the looks that you've been glaring at, you know, that nobody's gonna get in line. And then all of a sudden, this person just kind of nudges their way nudges away, talks to somebody in front of you, you know, and all of a sudden finds a way in line. See, the prophecies are the the assertions of the divine will. God cutting in line. Is that we have our lives worked out, and we have our empires, and we've had the Romans and the Greeks and, 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 and the Babylonians and all these, and we've gone about our history, but the prophecies of God are when God just kind of says, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, I'm going to take your place in line, and, and I'm just going to cut in here. And God just asserts himself in the affairs of time, in the affairs of mankind, and is like, I am going to impose my intentions on mankind. But today, as I've gotten a little older, when I look at the prophets and their foretellings, they have kind of a different value to me. Um, Less sterile and and less mathematical. And And it's not because I discovered that to be wrong. It was that once you've done the math and you know you got good math, well, there's no reason to go back and do that math again. I mean, who goes back and takes calculus all over again just for fun? I mean, once you got it and you, you passed it, it's like, let's get the heck out of it and let's move on to something else. Well, once, the, the, once you've solved that problem and you've, you've established a good, reliable numeric base, I mean, you, you just move on from it. And, and so I, I, don't, I don't use them as a verification of existence any longer. And, and these are kind of words that I use. For me, it's no more the prophet, prophet's are no more an answer to some cosmological conversation, and that is the how-to. And these are like two words that I use, and if you're into philosophy, these are two words. that They, they used to be about the cosmological question, about, okay, how did the universe come into existence, and how do these pr- prophecies speak to the how of the universe, and is that how really a god? But over time... The prophets began to take on another meaning to me, and it's it's another philosophical word, but I'm telling you the word because it's it these are concerns to people. I'm not the only crazy man in the room. It's the teleological argument. And what that means in big, you know, this big word means in little terms is what is the tell of the prophets? You know, the cosmological thing is like the how, the, the God of creation, but what is the tell? Of the prophets. What is it that they're trying to tell me? Yes, they're improbable. Yes, they point to some, some intelligent design, ordering things like amino acids being placed in a very specific kind of code to form proteins and then to be used to form this, this uh, delivery system of DNA and the information that gets in there. You begin to look at this complex structure, you know, because I look at everything that way. But it's like, but, but now what are they telling me? What is is the message that's coming out of it? And I think for me, the prophets tell me that before there was a starry night, and that before there was shepherds tending the sheep in the fields, and that before there was this little humble manger, that God was thinking about me. That God was thinking about you. That God was actually thinking about me. Have you ever been someplace and all of a sudden you run into somebody you haven't seen in a while, and they was, they'll say to you something like, I was just thinking about you the other day. Now, I'm from Boston originally, and if you tell a Bostonian that I was just thinking about the other day, I think we're going to fight, because that means you can't be thinking anything good about me, because I'm not really sure there is too much, It's like, or it's an invasion of my privacy. Who told you to be thinking about me the other day? What are you thinking about me? I was thinking about you. I'm thinking about you right now. I'm going to come, you know. I mean, so that's just how I respond when somebody tells me, I was thinking about you the other day. But if you're a normal human being and somebody says, hey, you know what? I was just thinking about you the other day. There's some sense of, oh, you mean I matter? You mean to tell me that I don't occupy only my own thoughts, my own brain, my own little existence, but yet there are other conscious beings out there that actually have thoughts towards me. And so when I look at the prophets, what they're telling me is that God's thinking about me, that he's thinking about you. See, in the Bible Belt, we always think that God is looking to deal with sin, And I'm going to push you a little bit theologically here. But we we look at the Christmas story and we think about, if you were to ask, if you were to fill out a survey, what is the Christmas story about? It was all about God sending Jesus to the world to die on the cross because of sin. Now, that is part of the components of the story. But I think we've kind of exaggerated in the sense that that's the only part of the story. That that's the only thing God's thinking about. That when God before the foundations of the world, his best commodity was this. The one thing that he wanted to do was to produce sin. Because if I could do the sin thing, then that would be a great story. So I'm going to create sin, and then I'm going to put some creature in it, and then I'm going to rescue them. That seems to be the way that we tell the Bible story. Sin is a part of it. The rescuing from sin and Jesus coming to the earth to die for the sins of the world, that's, that is part of the story. But we act like that that is the first thought of God. But the idea of us, the idea of you, preceded the reality of sin in the mind of God. I mean... That makes a big difference to me. That I'm not just somebody that a, that a, a first responder pulled out of a fire. Is that, that God thought about me before the sin issue occurred. That, that he was not compelled to create the world to have it deal with sin so he could rescue it from sin. That, that God wanted to have a relationship with me. They wanted to have a relationship with you. Now, we knew sin would, would be a part of that because anytime you put any free will being on the planet and you give the ability to choose intimacy or reject intimacy, you're going to end up with some stuff. It's kind of like you put a cow in a barn, you're going to end up with some eh, that you're going to have. So, you don't just, if you want the cow, you got to buy a shovel. I mean, it comes with it. But we think that all the Christmas story is about is the shovel or all the stuff that's found in the barn. But no, it's about us. It's about the intention of of, of God towards us. The prophets weren't just revealing the birth plans of the Savior. They were not just geocaching the location so that we could be like, oh, he said it's gonna be in Bethlehem. That's cool, he's given us GPS points and we can figure it all out. Or just tell us the manner in which, the way this thing was going to play out. The prophets were revealing to us the the tell of God, the intentions of the heart of God. What's he after? I mean, isn't that the question that you have about him? I mean, it's like all the different stuff that happens on this planet. What does God want? Tell me, what does he want? And so the Apostle Paul writes about the Christmas story in his own way. In Ephesians 1, 3, he writes this, and I want you to hear the intentionality of God towards us. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, before the apple dropped, before the snake slivered, Before all that, he chose us. He didn't choose to rescue mankind from sin prior to us in the mind of God. He knew that when he thought about us, he knew what kind of stuff that we would get into. But he chose us before the foundations of the world. What an incredible thought. That you mean to tell me, God, you really orchestrated this whole thing to end up with me. And Paul says that he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. And listen to this language of intentionality. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons, to be a part of a family through Jesus Christ to himself. I mean, he's he's laying this thing out. That's what the prophets are telling us is what is the intention of God towards us? He's laying it all out. He's like, I, I'm predestining you to become a part of my family. I'm not just predestining you to become a sinner that I first respond to and rescue and then kind of dust you off and, you know, pat you on the butt, and then you go off and live your life. He's like, no, the whole thing is about I've chosen you before the foundations of the world. I have predestined you to become sons. Now, part of that will be the rescuing from the effects of sin. But we need to know kind of like what is the intention in the heart of God. And listen to it. It says, he loved in him. He predestined us to his adoption to become a part of the family to himself according to the the kind intention of his will. Now just think about God. Just think about your version of God, your history of God, your tradition of God. Kind intention? Intention? You know, what I have what found is that you can be around biblical people, you can be around Christian people, and you can find that you can be around people who talk about love, who, who are in love, and you can talk about people who love God, and you can talk about people who love the truth of God and walk in the truth of God. But you know what that does not necessarily make them? is kind. Kind's a little different, isn't it? You know, um, I'm a loving person. But for the next 15 to 20 to 25 years I get to be on this, on this planet, I, wanted, I want love to kind of work its way through and out of the, the meat and the sinew and the, and the psychology and the, the, uh, of my life. And it's like, well, what will that look like? It'll be called something really complex like kindness. I know God is love, and I know that he's truth, and I know he's righteous, and I know that he's just, and I'm not making fun of him by saying it that way, but those are the things that we hold on to. But someplace along the line, we forgot that he's, he's kind, and he's in, he has an intention that is very kind. You know, there was a storm that rolled through the Hollywood area, the greater Hollywood area, and as it as it rolled through the, about four o'clock at night, there was a lot of rumbling going on. Lightning was hitting. Rain was coming down like crazy. And it's in a storm like that that my little my little faith, my little brain, my little small perception of of God begins to begins to tweak me a little bit. It kind of works on me a little crazy. And I'm laying there in bed, and I'm beginning to hear the storm getting closer, and kabang, kabang, and the counting in between strikes is beginning to disappear. And I know it's overhead. And I'm just laying there in my uh, memory foam bed, and I'm just laying there. and I'm like, all right, my wife's gone. So I know he's not going to blow up the house if she's here, because we all know Susan Rienzo. She's like, the, you know, amazing. But now she's not here. She's down in Florida. You know, I'm on the second floor and God's got, a, he's got an electric storm right over my house and I'm beginning to think of a thousand reasons why God would be justified to, to take me out with a really good lightning bolt. Now, why in the world do our brains work that way? I mean, why do we think that there's hostility in God towards us, that that's his first thought, Yes, we understand we got this dilemma called sin. We've got this issue about our our rebellion against God and his authority. I I get all that. But why do we think that, that that has altered his heart? That humans are so powerful and so evil that we could actually change the intention of the heart of God. That's it. I'm ticked. I'm now going to be wrathful for the rest of existence. You just wore me out. I'm not going to be that good God anymore. I'm just going to be the tick God now. And it's not the case. But yet in my bed while I was laying there, I was thinking, God, you got me. Okay, you can blow me up for whatever reason possible. And I can list you at least 10 reasons why I need to die right now. And God was just like, do you really think that is my intention? Do you think it's my first intention is to wipe you out? Do you think that's what it's all about? And so the Christmas prophecies are the expressions of God's heart towards you then and you today. And it's very important that we talk about today because I can look at the Christmas story and I can see the little lambs and I can see the little manger and the swaddling clothes and I can see the, sh- the shepherds and God being really cool with the shepherds with a bunch of angels showing up and just sc- scaring the, you know, crazy, these, these guys. And-, and just all this amazing stuff and the romantic story that's laid out there and beautiful. And I can see that there, but what about me? What is his intention towards the 21st century American that's struggling with Depression, addiction, pornography, jealousy, covetousness, anger, selfishness. Oh, it's got to be, he's got to really be ticked with us. I mean, he's got to really want, it's like his intentions towards us have not changed any different than his intentions towards those shepherds on that hill that night. And the prophets were telling us so. That before there were shepherds, God already had this kind intention. He had this predestined plan that he was going to work out for our lives. And it's very important that you don't miss this. You know, I had an illustration moment with God the other day uh, because sometimes I, I panic. Sometimes I wonder what's God doing and I was sitting in Washington Park, and it's a beautiful little park that's right behind City Hall off of Broad Street, and I was waiting to meet with the city attorneys, and, the, and we had our the Crosstowns lawyer and Crosstowns engineering team that we've hired, and they had their lawyers, and they had their engineering team, and it was kind of a big powwow about the flooding issue and what's going on here in the Church Creek Basin, and what, what about our building? And, and What's the next thing? And as I was sitting there in the park about 15 minutes earlier, I was thinking about the complexity of the flooding situation. And all of a sudden, all these thoughts started to happen, like engineering facts. i got to remember to talk about the engineering facts. And I began thinking about the narrative of our church. I began to think about um, events that have occurred, solutions that kind of worked a little bit, solutions that didn't work, solutions that would work but we can't afford, trying to sell the building, nobody would buy it, you know, and then I was concerned about how I would respond, I mean, I've been in the South for 36 years, and it's had a great, great experience on my life, and I thank you all for letting me be here, but I was born in Boston first, and if I do hit my my thumb with a hammer, I have to say it, that guy just knows the Dorchester Boston, and he pops out. And I was really concerned that guy was going to pop out in the middle of this meeting, and, and I didn't need him to pop out. So as all these things were bombarding my mind, I just decided I was going to begin to just remember the promises of God, the prophecies of God, what God has said that how he would assert himself in time with kind intentions on my behalf you know i began to think of things like jeremiah 29 11, probably one of the most quoted verses in the bible i know the plans that i have for you to give you a hope in the future not to harm you to prosper you you know I, and i began to take that that kind of idea and i'm like okay that, that's a good one. And then I was thinking another one, maybe Paul said, I know that, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete. And it's like, oh, okay, that's, that's another good one. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can hold on to that. And I began thinking about all these and they began to comfort me as I was sitting there waiting and, and encouraging me. But the interesting thing, none of them were talking about flooding. None of them were a solution about the building. And so as I was there and I was um, sitting there, I I looked down and I noticed the individual brick that was underneath my feet. And and that's actually it right there. And I was looking at that brick and I I noticed how beautiful the brick was, this beautiful architectural kind of an antique type of brick. And I began to see that this brick and there were another brick and another brick and they were just kind of like, pointing in all kinds of different directions. They weren't actually pointing the way anywhere. But there was like just this brick and it was just in the middle of other bricks. But then I began to pull my eyes back a little bit and I began to focus on a group of the bricks. And I noticed that when you had two or three bricks, that they began to form a geometrical shape. And then as I looked at that shape, I realized that that shape was directional. And I think you can begin to see that there's kind of like an arrow beginning to form, or a triangle beginning to work. And I realized that, okay, when I pulled away from just the one brick and started adding two or three more bricks to the story, I began to see th- there's, this is ordered. This isn't random. And not only that, there seems to be direction in them. And then when I lifted my head, I realized and I saw that all these individual bricks collectively produced a very beautiful and very clear and a very straight path. So out of what appeared to be one single brick pointing in the wrong direction, when I began to add another brick to it, it began to give me a sense of shape, a sense of intelligent design, that, there was, that this thing didn't randomly just happen in time and space. And as I began to see the flow, that the flow was, became this became this incredible, beautiful thing, and it was straight. It wasn't jagged like the, like the individual things were. You know, individually, the, the prophecies, or maybe individually you'll read a story in the Old Testament and you'll scratch your head, huh, and a virgin will give birth to a child. Yeah, I don't know where we're going with this. Or another one that comes out of the book of Genesis, is that uh, God would send a deliverer that would get bit on the heel by Satan, but yet he would crush the head of Satan. Huh, not exactly sure what that is. Then we got the flood thing, not exactly how to figure that one out. But then when you begin to add brick upon brick upon brick, and you begin to hear story after story after story, you begin to see a shape. You begin to see a flow in the middle of history, in the middle of the Persians, in the middle of the Iron Age, in the middle of the Bronze Age, while humans are creating the atomic bomb and all the other things that we're creating, going to the moon. In the middle of it, there's these bricks that are beginning to take shape and form and produce in direction. And then if you're looking at the bricks, if you look at them, you'll see, oh my gosh, there's a path that will lead me in a straight direction and in a way that I should go. See, when you look at it and begin to add it all up, it's like the intentions of God become rather clear. So when I was thinking about what do all the bricks add up, when I look at the Scriptures, what does it all add up to? it, It comes to what has become a cliche verse in the Bible to us, but yet it really is the revealed intention of the heart of God. And you've heard it a thousand times in signs held up at football games. John three sixteen begins this way and it says that God so loved the world. That is the effective cause That is the prime mover. I get an object moving, I produce inertia, the object moves. We can, through calculus, evaluate the acceleration or deceleration of the object as it continues to move, and we can look at it. But if I go back and find out what is the primary force that was exerted on the universe or on the world or on the attention of God, it is this. It is not sin. It is that God so loved us and somewhere in the middle of the Bible Belt, we lost that message. We start with sin. i got to prove how evil you are, and then make you feel ungrateful, wretched, prove that you're, you know, unrecoverable, and then try to sell you on some really good message. Well, how about we start the same way God started? I love you guys a whole bunch. Now, you got this crap in your life that we got to work on because it's really slowing you down. It's dragging you down and it's destroying you. But I want you to know my intentions towards you. The first push towards you is I love you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Again, there is this, this issue between us and God that's got to be dealt with. But the Christmas story is God saying, I'm taking the initiative. You are my first thought. And I don't know why, and I don't mean to beat up the Bible bell because I'm a part of it, though I was reminded after the first service, somebody reminded me that no matter how many years I've been here, I'm still still northern until I change my accent. Um, But I don't know why we only read John 3.16 Why don't we read John 3, 16, and 17? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge it, but that the world might be saved through him. Paul, when that storm came over your house at 4 o'clock, why was it that the first thought you had was that this is God's opportunity to judge you? It's not his intention. It was not His ever his first intention in your life. See, this is why we got to tell the Christmas story. It's because we forget this. See, God invites us to walk the path of his kind intentions. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he called us things like the elect, or the chosen, or the predestined. Now, there are some theological ideas about these words that are absolutely crazy and absurd, as if God's only chosen some people to go to heaven and the others, he chose them to go to hell. Just take that and throw it in your trash can. It's just like, it's, it, there's those good Christian, God-loving people teaching that thing, but, but it is so stupid, it's incredible. They've lost the intention of God. But what this means is, it, it, it means that we are those who have responded to the predestined assertions of God in history and aligned our lives with those assertions. We've seen the brick. It was like, huh, that's interesting. That looks like God loves me. Yeah, but it's kind of wonky. Kind of like heads in the wrong direction. Mm. Okay, what about wiping out those people, the Canaanites? Yeah, I, don't know, I don't know. Then another brick. It's like, okay, well, another brick. All right, well, what do these bricks add up to? Huh, well, it's pointing somewhere. No, it's, it's, a, it's intentional. And then all of a sudden, all the other bricks. And all of a sudden, we're, we are those who step on this path of the the, the chosen plan of God. And so what does God call you when you're on the plan, the chosen intention of the, the kindness of God? We are called the chosen. We're on the path. We're called, the early church, they were referred to as the way. It's the way of what? The way of man? No. This is the way of God. He forgives people. He chases people with kindness and love and intentionality. He sends his son so that he can adopt sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. So before there was a starry night and shepherds in the field, and before there was a Moses and a Red Sea, before there was a snake and a fall in the garden, the kind intentions of God's heart, his heart, was pointing towards you. It always has been. And maybe you lost that, and I get it. There's a lot of misdirection in the world. But if we begin to look stone by stone what God has done and asserted himself in history, maybe we'll rediscover it's like, he's, he so loves me. And he didn't come to bring a storm over me to judge me, but rather to save me, to rescue me out of the things that are destroying my life. And through Christmas, he invites you to rise and to begin walking the path. Once you've done the math, once you've discovered the stones and you've discovered the shapes, God says, okay, it's great. You've done the math. You see the shapes. Now come walk the walk. Come journey with me. And in Christmas, he invites you to that. You know, this is more abstract than it is factual, as we enter into this moment of expressions, but I, I was thinking about why the God made the world round, and I know you guys were like, "This dude needs to lighten up a little bit." I mean, he, like, why not? Why round? Why not just a big monolith? Why, why? Why not just some slab? You know, just put it out there, just slab, and just put people on it. But I think it's because of this, and this is just my own thinking based upon all the stones that I've seen on the path. Is that God knew that humanity would get in a cycle of self-dysfunction, warring, jealousy. That we promise ourselves we'd be better, but the following day we really don't end up any better. And he knew that we would get into a political dysfunction, governmental dysfunction. Family dysfunction thought dysfunction personal and we knew we had a cycle of that So he's like, you know what I got to put them on an object That's cyclical With another message than the cycle of their dysfunction So I'll put them on something round that every year that thing will spin around And when they think the world is just about to fall apart and that the intentions of God have been lost on them, they'll be reminded once again by the same prophets, by the same shepherds, by the same little girl and carpenter man, by the same wise men, by the same little story, that the intentions of God are towards them and they are kind So let me invite you to rediscover. That's why I love the fact that we've kind of come up with seven days. And in the beginning of the seventh day, we come to church. And our tradition may be that on that seventh day, we remind you that God is going to judge the world. But today, we're not doing that. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that He didn't send them to judge the world, but through His Son, that He would save the world. And I'm going to put you on a cycle of weeks. I'm going to let you guys invent this thing. And every, every seventh day, and every 365 days of rotation, I'm going to build it into the seasons, that, that in the middle of the cycle of your dysfunctions and brokenness, that you'll come around and once again hear a story that God so loved the world. So we invite you to come into this moment of expressions and take the bread and dip it into the cup and once again remember the kind intentions of God towards you. Father, I thank you for this moment. I thank you, Lord God, that you have cut in my line, that you have forced yourself into my life. And Lord God, we are told that the path to hell is paved with the kind intentions of men never accomplished. But today, through the prophets, we are reminded that the way to heaven was paved with the kind intentions of God. And today, no matter how dysfunction, no matter how cyclical our brokenness may be, Today, we rise in the kind attentions of God and we receive mercy and help in a time of need. And you stand here in the brokenness of the bread and in the cup. And you remind us, I love you. I chose you before the foundations of the world. I was thinking about you. So we enter into this moment of kind intention. Let me invite you into it with God.